0: Hey, listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling, and now investing in Southeast Asia, I sit down with founders, investors, and entrepreneurs who can share their hard-earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. Chong Siung and I are both Rocket Internet alumni, but his experience spans across the Middle East to Africa and Southeast Asia. Chong has managed multi-million dollar budgets for Lazada to working for listed companies in e-commerce building a crypto startup and working for a Y Combinator company. If you ever wondered what it's like working for YC or Rocket Internet, this is a good episode for you. We discuss the differences between the two companies and some of the values that have worked out for them. We also get to pick Chong's brain on how to set up a performance marketing team in Southeast Asia and why he thinks many growth-oriented startups waste too much money and funding on marketing. Later on, we get to talk about Chong's time working at Tendered, a YC company, and the difference in work cultures across the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia. The final section talks about the state of crypto and the rise of NFTs. This is an exciting episode you don't want to miss, so let's dive in and listen. Chang Siang, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, this is take two, uh, but we'll, we'll start from the beginning again. So uh, Chong, you started your career as a trader. We both have a very similar background where you were doing some trading back in 2011 in uh, Malaysia, and you also did some M&A work. Um, and then uh, by 2013, you were picked up by Lazada to do performance marketing. So why don't you tell us a little about your trading experience and then how you got picked up by Lazada?
1: Right. Um, So the trading thing happened actually for many years um, after I graduated. Uh, I was very interested in the markets. I was mainly trading equities and uh, commodities. So um, I think the role at Lazada kind of um, was a natural transition because, you know, we worked a lot with numbers. So I I still remember the tests that I had to do um, in the office Um, you know, it was quite cool. You know, I went to the Lazada KL office, did the test, um, but the whole process was really quick. You know, I got called to Bangkok uh, within two days uh, after the interview happened. So it was my first experience with Rocket, right? Rocket Speed. And I never had a company, you know, um, completing, um, hiring within two days and expecting you to get over there. Um, So I think that was pretty cool. So my experience with Lazada again was my first experience handling, uh, you know, budgets worth millions of of euros, and I think at that time was one of the largest in the region. Um, I was mainly focused in search engine marketing uh, with Google, with Bing. You know, if you remember Bing. Bing
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, what we just discussed just now is that what's interesting is Lazada was just forming this centralized marketing function. Typically, uh, Rocket has a centralized version from Berlin, but then you still have to regionalize it. And Lazada decided to move the marketing performance team that manages all the countries for Lazada uh, performance marketing from Singapore to Bangkok. Uh, what was the reason for moving to Bangkok?
1: Well, I think it was mainly on a cost uh, perspective, right? Uh, because you know the marketeers before me; they were actually moved from their own countries. Um, So we had like team members who were already working in Lazada Vietnam, for example. Uh, they were moved to yeah. Singapore, and I think shortly thereafter, their trading and and you know Lazada decided that okay, I think we're going to move to Bangkok, and so they did. And and so the Lazada office in 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 Bangkok, Thailand, was pretty huge. I think at one point we had like at least a couple hundred people in the office. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and you were hired as uh, which which number was that? The first ten, first twenty.
1: Um, I was pretty late in the game, to be honest. Like uh, I think Lazada was already operating like a year plus, you know, when I was hired. So um, I'm I'm not really an early employee per se
0: for the for the performance marketing team.
1: For performance marketing team, I believe there were um, one or two uh, before me. Um, I think my boss back then, uh, he was managing uh, marketing and then, you know, it grew because they had to spend, you know, all this uh, budget that they received uh, in order to grow. And so he started to grow out his team. And so for the search engine marketing team, we had um, six people. And then, you know, for social media marketing, I think they had another 10. Um, And then, you know, it was kind of like a very clear division that they had. They had CRM team, they had, um, Surge, They had Facebook, and and then yeah. they also had like uh, the on-site team. So it was pretty huge team to be honest. And I think back then it was probably one of the most uh, advanced setup that I've seen.
0: Yeah, yeah. and uh, back then also we were discussing before that there, you know there was no tools that we see today. Where this is a very mature market. Uh, Google has perfected everything you do. You just click buttons and you're done. But I think back then what you were running massive amounts of spreadsheets, macros, and this kind of stuff, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I never had any expectations for the laptops that I used back then, you know, it was until I joined Zada and I realized that my, my computer was not up to par and we've always had to, you know, <laughs> rely on a, a very good laptop. You know, we would, we would request for computers that could, you know, play games yeah. because we knew that we were going <laughs> to play games too. But uh, it was yeah. mainly to use the Microsoft Excel uh, because, you know, we would deal yeah. with hundreds of thousands of of rows at, at any given point in time.
0: Yeah, and what people don't know is that the, the secret to Rocket Internet was just using spreadsheets to build billion-dollar companies, essentially, and working really hard and fast, right?
1: <laughs> Google Sheets, to be exact.
0: <laughs> all Ooh, our yes, budget exactly. and exactly. all the
1: planning happened on Google Sheets. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, you went out of rows, it slows down, and then you have to make more sheets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so then I have two questions about that. Um, what was the cost factors going into it? It seems that you're having to pay a higher package for people in Singapore. And essentially what happened is what you would pay a lower package in Bangkok, but for the same talent? Is that how right. that works? Or what was um, the cost factors that made people want to switch?
1: Well, I think in general is this, right? Um online marketing was still pretty new back then and they they realized that they had to train everyone from the ground up. And so if you're yeah. gonna train everyone from the ground up, um then there is no reason for you to pay uh, a premium, right? Like a, a wage yeah, premium. True. So I find I, I that in a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for the region because um, in terms of quality of life, uh, retail scene in, in Bangkok, right? It's, it's pretty decent. And, but essentially what happens is that you take advantage of this regional difference in the market. So my follow-up question then is, you know, if there are new companies in this day and age, 2021 and beyond, Is this a good structure to follow advice? Because you see a lot of people raising tons of money. They probably ended up starting in Singapore because either that's Mm -hmm. where the money has been based or where a lot of the foreign talent wants to kind of go. Does it make sense to kind of follow in Lazada's footsteps? And, you know, in my previous episode I did, it it's kind of stays with the tech team too. Right? The tech team started in China, moved to Philippines, then moved to Vietnam. Then there was a few other countries that they opened up and ended up closing down and Vietnam still persists. So there are like these regional advantages you can take up. Would you say from a marketing standpoint, that still makes sense today? Should new companies do that?
1: You mean should companies centralize in a cheaper country, right?
0: Yeah, for the for the, for the Southeast Asia region specifically. Well, I, I think that really makes sense, money, right?
1: Um, because if you look yeah. at all the pitch decks uh, today, you know, when you ask the founders, mm-hmm. what is your growth uh, model and, you know, how are you going to spend the money? They would say, you know, okay, 60% is going to marketing. And by marketing, you, <laughs> you mean you're uh, going to spend it on Facebook and Google, right? So, yeah, yeah I mean, correct. 60% yeah, of what yeah, you yeah. raise goes to Facebook and Google. And then if that that is still true today... Um, I think that means that you need to have uh, a lower cost structure, right? Because you want to allocate the majority of your your capital uh, towards growth.
0: Yeah. I mean, does that still make sense with a lower cost structure? Yes. But then it's almost like a Red Sea now, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's competing for the same talent, but also the same user base. Mm -hmm. Is that that enough to... I still
1: think that the the centralization of... um, skill set is, is still really important, right? Because, you know, what we used to yeah. do at Azada is that we do uh, a lot of um, cross-learning. So a lot of best practices yeah. that we had, you know, in different countries, uh, we would share them, and, and that's how we would learn and grow, right? And that's what Rocket did yeah. for us as well. They would have periodic calls of us um, to share best practices, you know, how you would optimize yeah, and so on. And <clears throat> I think today, um, there's two main problems with marketing, right? Especially digital marketing, because Everyone can do marketing these days, apparently. And um, yeah, correct. we still find that there's a, there's a huge shortage in terms of getting people who are very experienced in, in uh, performance marketing. And so a lot of my colleagues and friends, they still have to train uh, people from the ground up. And if that is still the case you know, today, um, like it was back then, then I don't think that the model needs to change. Um, you're gonna have to yeah. allocate a lot of time to train people, and so it, they all have to be in the same place, anyways, right? Uh, you, mm-hmm. you even if you want to pay like two or three times the market rate today, um, you wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. get um, the talent, anyways. So, I mean, that's the thought behind
0: it. Well, I mean, well, put it this way too. Then, what how does especially with COVID, does remote change this dynamic now. And also the amount of capital flowing in the market, right? It's just uh, crazy amounts of, m- like people are raising higher and higher amounts at, you know, seed stage or early stage. And, you know, uh, there is more interest. Uh, there's more unicorns popping up and more exits on the horizon and a lot of IPOs, right? So that that brings a whole new wave, the next chapter that we're seeing. Um, you know, this, this kind of macro picture, does that change what you're talking about or no?
1: I don't think it should change uh, much uh, because of the structural problems with the talent. Um, mm. I've not seen any any changes, you know, like it's not like there's more people becoming marketeers these days. I think the number of people um, that are moving on from being marketeers to being founders um, yeah, are more compared to new people coming in, you know, specifically wanting to specialize in performance marketing. So I still think that there's a huge shortage in this area. And um, if your company is going to be, you know, GMV revenue focused and you need to grow through marketing, um, I think you understand that this is going to be a major bottleneck.
0: Well, tell tell me this. I mean, any any consumer facing company these days, is that not the case? You're going to be GMV focused and revenue focused? That's true.
1: Um, But. You see, so recently, my recent company was um, a YC-funded company, right? Um, they, they had a totally yeah. different approach. Uh, when, when you compare mm. with Rocket, uh, for example, Rocket is very focused on speed um, as well as scalability, right? But, uh, sure. you know, what founders are told in YC is to focus on doing things that, that are not scalable. Um, so, you know, they, they, they usually cite this example of Airbnb. When Airbnb started, um, it got a pretty slow start, and they found that users were not uploading uh, great pictures of the accommodation. So what the founders did was to fly over, meet um, the guys who were renting out these um, accommodations, and they would bring the photographers with them and take great pictures. So this is an example that they quote repeatedly, you know, we do things that are not scalable. Um, for example, taking pictures, you know, great pictures, uh, for our users. And I think that that is totally different, uh, from the rocket approach where, you know, you just, um, typically, uh, spray and pray, right? Like in, in marketing, when you reach enough people and a percentage of them comes and buy from you, um, you're good. Whereas, um, you know, in a YC startup, what is recommended is that you it's better to have ten happy customers than a thousand um not so happy customers.
0: You know, that's it's so interesting that point, because this is actually the topic I talked about in my first episode for EOA and um that 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 friend worked for Airbnb and uh He told that story as well. And I can't believe, you know, 2021, you know, they're still saying the same things, right? So it hasn't changed much. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll talk about this later, but the the nature of YC is changing, though, even though they're saying this kind of stuff. Um, I know, and I would would disagree a little bit. I think, I do agree with, you know, yeah, Rocket's a very different flavor and style, but on the ground level, when you are on the ground level team starting something brand new and scratch for Rocket, there's a lot of brute force that you do have to do that's just not scalable. What you have the advantages is the capital, which allows you to accelerate, to move faster, right? It's like a volume knob. So especially like uh, in an arbitrage situation like Asia, that money gives you a multiplier effect of hiring cheap labor where you do brute force it. It's not scalable. But with enough capital over time, uh, what, what Rocket's really good at is oper- operationalizing processes details, structure, spreadsheets, data, right? Once you layer that on, then, then you start to make it more scalable process. Just, it just seems to happen very fast because how much money going to it. But when, when I'm doing it on the ground though, you know, it was really just really not scalable. Like the things that you would have to do, like it just doesn't make sense, you know, pulling the buying team to doing warehouse ca- you know, stock counts when they should be doing buying, you know, like, or, you know, it's, uh, you know, manually uploading payments one by one because the bank doesn't allow you to do bulk upload. Right. So, um, so I think there is a mix of both, you know, it's, it just feels a lot faster because you have much more resources than say like a a YC company early days where just, you know, raised a few million dollars. So,
1: well, I think, I think there is a reason for that, right? Because um, for the most part, you know, YC again is based in the U S and, you know, U S being a country that it's, pretty expensive to operate to hire new people um for your startup right so in in general the cost of the cost of growth is is pretty high you know compared to the rocket model for the most part rocket launches in really cheap countries you know Southeast Asia Eastern Europe for example and 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 so it's it's okay you know for you to just spend money and and acquire customers right and yeah. and and I think that is why there's a lot of emphasis on product market fit, you know, uh, with, yeah. with YC companies uh, versus Rocket, you know, let's just find something that works, right, um, and, and just spend money in that process.
0: So we're in a, we're in a different chapter in a new cycle, right? There's, there's mm-hmm. more money than ever. There's more exits, like we talked about. Things are getting bigger. And there's a whole wave of talent that kind of went through our first wave of the 10 years. Uh, in this kind of new cycle, though, do you feel marketing is at the point where it's going to be similar to more developed markets, where everyone's fighting for the same user bases? Like as a new marketer coming into the region, how do you think about customer acquisition? How do you think about LTV? How do you think about CAC? You know, the customer acquisition cost. Um, is it going to be? Are we at the point where it's very similar to the West now, where we should be focusing more product market fit, or is this still about raising too much money to get that kind of capital advantage because you could buy things at a cheaper rate and close that arbitrage?
1: Well, I think it's moving closer to that, um, as we speak, yeah. but I still don't think that, um, in terms of cost comparison that, um, you know, Asia, it's, is on par with the West. I still think that there's many parts, um, in Southeast Asia where you can still have like, uh, a, a positive return, you know, on every dollar, dollar that you spend. So I still think that that is possible, mm. but I think, um, you know, coming back again to the product market fit, you know, whether there, there is a demand um, for the services, yeah, the right. products that you're actually marketing. Uh, I think that that matters a lot, right? Because that that actually proves or, you know, sets the benchmark for your conversion rate. So if you sell something shitty, yeah, um, yeah you're going to have problem marketing it, I think, in the long run. Maybe in the beginning, you're going to have customers coming But also think of it from the uh, returns uh, perspective, right? Customers are going to return your product or they may not recommend someone else um, to your service or product.
0: Yeah, well, that that stickiness factor just speaks to overall LTV and you have to run Mm -hmm. the company for a while to do that. But what happens is that like a lot of companies in the region, Southeast Asia, um, especially if you're very good at storytelling, having a narrative, right? Because capital is chasing alpha, right? They're like, institutional money is squeezing into VC and it's a tiny amount, but it's like for us, it's a crazy amounts of money that we've never seen before. Um, But what's happening is, right. These, these guys will just, because of nature of Southeast Asia, you, you just buy your growth and then they try to work backwards to a product market fit. Right. Do do you think, do you agree this is what's been happening or, or do you think there are people who are actually finding real product market fit or is it a mix? I think it's a mix.
1: Yeah. You know, when you have that much capital, um, immediately after you get the money in a bank, your investors will expect growth, right? And these days, you know, VCs yeah. expect a 300% um, year-over-year growth. So, you know, how much time do you actually yeah. have to, to really figure it out? Um, you know, by the time yeah. you figure out product market fit, you know, um, you may not have the amount of growth that the investors want. And, you know, you don't want to be the guy to tell your investor that, hey, I don't think I can hit this year's target. <laughs> so I think a yeah. lot of um, companies yeah. now they 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 start like really lean, and um, that's what I noticed. Um, a lot of founders, mm-hmm. you know, they come from startups themselves, and you know, yeah. many of them have like really healthy uh, stock options, uh, which they manage to let's say um, cash in. And many of these guys now really? they're, they're, they're starting. Yeah, i mean like in lazada for example you have a lot of people who have left um but yeah that's true you know, they catch in pretty well and then they, they went on to start their own companies but you don't really hear no. you know that they are raising money you know from the get-go they want to build something first and then they start to raise um so i think i think that's what's happening you know as an
0: example i mean at the at the higher levels if you were the top guys uh, they raise too much money, probably, right? Like right. Uh, P- uh, but Pierre, who left, right, he raised a crazy amount of money for for his <laughs> e-commerce idea. Uh, but then, yeah, I think you're right. If you're like kind of this middle kind of guy, you kind of understand you need to build something of value first, uh, have a proper MVP, have some clarity before you kind of raise. And I think if you do have that, though, I do feel these days it's quite easy to get money if you have the right right traction. So, uh, but it's where we are in the cycle. Well, I think this is healthy,
1: right? Um, you know, moving yeah. from just speculating not having like a real product market fit you know towards having something concrete you know like maybe even like many of the companies that are raising these days they they already have like revenue going for that you know it may not be huge amounts of revenue but i think they, they prove that the business actually works or could work and could have a much bigger you know tam so um then they managed to raise based on that, right?
0: Well, let's, let's, let's tease it out, right? So I, I've been recommending to the companies that Angel invested in. Um, they, 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 you know, it's kind of like what you're saying, looking for a clear product market fit, looking very design-centric, talking to your customers, right? So they kind of have that element, but I'm realizing that we're in a part of the cycle where it's what we talked about. If the performance marketing is giving you that return, you should just maximize it. So go out and raise way more money put into those channels. And if it's a strong product market fit where no one's serving it, you will get to the scale where you can attract even more capital and it kind of comes self-fulfilling. So do you, do you think this is the correct strategy Uh, that, you know, it while, while yes, it's healthier to do product market fit, uh, you know, and, and look at it from a very value creation perspective, a wealth creation perspective. I don't think you can ignore where we are. If, you know, competition comes in and copies you with more money, you're kind of be in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. So do you think it's valid to kind of do this?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, going back again to the basics, right? Like, if you yeah. if you have it all worked out, you should definitely uh, yeah. put your foot down, you know, on the gas pedal and, and go all the way. So, I, I still think that, that that you know, it is the right um, strategy, you know, um, simply because if you don't chase growth, then what are you chasing, right? Because when you raise money from investors, that's what they expect. Um, If you don't yeah. expect growth, then, you know, just start a small mom and pop shop.
0: Well, it's more if you uh, attract the VC type mindset, then, then mm-hmm. you expect growth, of course, because especially these days, with the amount of money coming in, it means the amount of AUM that these VCs are managing are also increasing, which means tiny amounts of money don't move the needle anymore. So it really doesn't matter. So it, it does kind of mean you have to put the money to work. That, that part could be a bit unhealthy, though. I get that's a bit of a moral hazard, right, where it could get out of control. Uh, at what point do you think that gets out of control?
1: Well, I think even now, right? So there are many examples, uh, you know, when you when you talk to investors, uh, when you like, you know, I do a lot of consulting for for other companies as well. And then when they talk to yeah. the investors, you know, okay, mm-hmm. so what sort of GM we should be recognizing? And <laughs> they, they seem to point at that direction where the highest that you can, right? You know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, I think it's just like, it's becoming to you know. It's becoming you know uh, like what you mentioned, right? Um, basically, you know, my, I don't think there's a there's a real there's a there's a word to to basically describe it. But I think it's becoming like a beauty pageant in itself because um, as as a yeah. VC, you you just want to sell it the high valuation to the next VC.
0: Well, that's the pot that's like the Ponzi scam element this is like the financial engineering element of mm-hmm. a lot of noise coming into v c like you don't have like these very founder oriented VCs. these are just guys looking for quick returns right or they want paper returns to next to raise the next fund mm-hmm. um, so there you know there there's a moral hazard That if you some so the, so another question is like you know how do you know the founder really knows he has something that's product market fit? And also product market fit is just not like a fixed thing, right? It's something very dynamic that changes over time as you change the product and you grow, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, where does that confidence come from, from the founder side? And then at what point should the founder really listen to the VC to put the the pedal to the gas, the gas to the pedal or whatever?
1: (laughs) Well, you have to listen to your VC when you want to raise the next round, right?
0: Yeah, so I guess if you're playing the game,
1: they would be introducing new investors. Yeah, I mean, like, if, I would say at the end of the day, it's not like the VCs are holding the gun against your your forehead, right? Like telling you what to, what you should yeah. be saying. I think it's down to the founders themselves to decide. Okay, which is which is the direction that they want to take. Um, do they yeah, want to push it to the edge, or do they want to do something that is more sustainable? Uh, yeah. and, and so, but money corrupts, right? I don't think there's a right or yeah, wrong, right. yeah.
0: Which it depends on your goals and your objectives, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I guess on a signaling level, you know, if you do that game, you get higher valuations. Uh, even if it doesn't work out, I think you have the ability to raise more money later on. You have some credibility, right? So, well, I think
1: I think valuation is is really important, but it's not as important as your cash flow, right? You know, I think with COVID, um, it is definitely what many people call the great equalizer. Because, you know, you may have yeah. like a billion in valuation, but if you have no cash in the bank, you know, no VC is going to line up to put money. Uh, I think it's it's going to be a tough sell. So a lot of businesses then have to decide that, okay, um, should we try and survive or should we try to push for an even higher valuation? You know, does valuation even matter at the end of the day, you know, yeah. or... The ability to maybe survive and, and weather this uh, storm.
0: Well, t- tell me about these founders as well. It's, it seems kind of worrying that a founder that you're consulting says, "Should I be focusing on a certain type of GMV?" Shouldn't they be coming to you saying, "This is the type of GMV I'm focusing on," and then what do you think? Or is like wh- what's going on? Like, what kind of founders are you seeing these days? What's in the market? Uh, what quality are we seeing?
1: Well, I would say most of the founders, right? They, I mean, they're in the game to cash out. So naturally, okay. then, you know, that, that is the point, right? Like, if you cannot raise the next round, you cannot find your growth. Does it even matter? Like, at the end of the day, it, if you fail in your startup, the question is, where are you going? Uh, so you, you basically have no choice as well.
0: Well, okay, so that's the moral hazard I was talking about, right? At that point in time, you should really start to think about what's the real value creation that I've done here. That means you didn't create something valuable, right? So you should probably pivot to something more valuable or at least find a way to become profitable so you don't, you have at least your, you know, fiduciary responsibilities upheld, right? You, you know, at least you don't burn more money that you have a chance to survive to raise money without dying, you know? At least that's why I think that would be the correct uh, advice to give. I don't
1: know. I think so. That's why I'm not in a startup anymore. (laughs)
0: Well, yeah, you you had quite a few adventures, you know, at the at the beginning of the early crypto, the earliest wave of crypto, right? You were building your own startup. That that was really tough. Um, that that didn't work out so well. I think you've also done. You worked with larger scale companies too that had raised a lot of money and had some great founding teams. Like I think you worked that way. It was um, Easy Buy and Yuzu. Those are pretty big corporations, right?
1: Well, Easy Buy in twenty fifteen twenty sixteen was the largest uh, e commerce uh, in Singapore. So. At that time, I think Lazada Singapore was just starting out and Easybuy had the market share. Uh, The main business Mm -hmm. was actually a very um, sustainable business, right? So Mm -hmm. people pay them cash up front and then they would import stuff from China and send it to the customers, right? So the margin was great. It was a great business and, you know, they wanted to to expand regionally. Mm -hmm. So they reached out and I I did help them to launch in Thailand. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. Yuzu was actually uh it's actually a tech company, um, SGX listed. And you know, by that time when they actually uh hunted for me, um, they were actually in a turnaround phase. So they wanted to turn it around, mm. you know, because they know they they had issues uh, you know, in terms of looking for the for better markets for for growth prospects, right? So they hunted for people yeah. who had experience.
0: Yeah. So it, it seems like were these two companies and also your crypto startup, were they, mm-hmm. are, are they partial reasons of why you're kind of somewhat jaded now to startups or?
1: Yes. And I would say that, um, so I can even list it down for you. Like like Lazada did well, right? Again, they were acquired by Alibaba. Yeah. Um, but after Lazada, I went to easy buy, um, they kind of scaled down regionally, I believe, but they also um, listed themselves uh, via a reverse uh, takeover. So, right now they're listed on, on NYSE, I believe. Um, okay. They merged with this company from China called Light and Fox. So, okay. um, success or not, I don't know, but I didn't get anything. <laughs> and, and, I, and I know many people didn't get anything as well. Um, and then went on to Yuzu. Again, public listed company. Um, you know, I was offered again shares and stuff, the standard stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the turnaround, I think, uh, didn't really work that well. Uh, they had a lot of legal issues and stuff. Um, you know, although we had a really strong team that the chairman, the CEO were all really good people. Um, but, you know, fighting against giants, right? Like, you know, we yeah. wanted to go into e commerce but, you know, we had to fight against Lazada, Shopee, and all these guys out there. And, and so, it's, yeah. it's a different ballgame, right? Even if you're yeah. public listed, you know, it's not that easy. So, you know, having been in startup and in corporate and so many companies after, I, I just feel like does it really matter?
0: <laughs> You've become jaded, my friend. That's that's a very dangerous uh, line to follow. I've seen a lot of guys fall out of the. I think a lot of people don't realize the game that they're playing, and they become disillusioned with it. But it's, yes. I think your, your experience at YC is quite important because it, you know, I mean, it's like you know the German gospel of startup versus the Silicon Valley gospel of startup. They're very different right. flavors and different beliefs and wish well, right. But yeah, but I mean, ultimately, ultimately, I think there are certain truths to. Yeah, so I mean, like, let's let's talk about your experience at YC then. You know, I would feel at least working at YC, you know, YC company, Y combinator company, that should change certain things about your beliefs uh, that it is possible to build, create value, get product market fit, and scale it, right? Or, um, I don't know, what's what's the real deal? You know, is is it overhyped? Is it underhyped? Uh, you know, they do have an edge in terms of returns, but I can I think it's because of where they were based, timing wise, and also early method is very different than current method so um i don't know what what do you think about y c companies
1: well y c companies can always raise money that that is the that is why people go for you know for the brand um because you know it, it proves uh, your ability to raise money i think i think that's the first no. one right about eh. the second part i think is is really important is that if you are a founder right and you have no experience you haven't worked in rocket, you haven't worked at Tech, I think the yeah. amount of training that they provide you, the amount of perspective and guidance and support, um, is is really uh, valuable. So um, maybe because I came from Rocket, you know, I I wasn't really able to uh, appreciate, um, you know, because for me it's always about growth and speed, right? And yeah, you know, versus the different values that they preach. Yeah, for example. Um it's better to have ten happy customers than one thousand okay customers. I'm like don't yeah. have a thousand paying customers, right? So I, I'm always conflicted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But I think the idea behind um, having yeah. like customers, uh you know, happy customers is that they would uh, preach for you. I, I think I think that was yeah. what they were trying to get across.
0: So what, so what do they preach about in terms of ability to scale into a bigger market or like they did, does YC not care about that? Or do they think that if uh, the market will sort itself out as long as the product is good enough, um, because that's, that's like a number one thing, almost any investor in the region here will say is like, you know, uh, of course they care about the founders, but then, you know, will this, this, is this worth my, like, like you said, is there a multiplier? Is, is there any leverage? Does this grow to uh, you a hundred x a thousand X, right? So, um, what is the thoughts around that? Because it seems that if that's the early the, what they preach, it doesn't always there could always be this you know this uh, disconnect of it not actually being able to scale. So how do they resolve that?
1: Well, I think the first point is that um, you know why see in a very early stage, right? Like pre c yeah. And and so you know that is why mm. that doctrine comes about, right? Like you have to find a yeah. market fit because by Series A you you are prepared. You know, to, to basically grow, right? You you kind of found your yeah. product could fit, and then series a is when you really want to push it, right? So I'm not saying yeah, okay, we're not going to focus so much on marketing. We're going to focus more on a product, but I, I think that's where the mindset comes from. That's where most of the mm-hmm. doctrine
0: okay, that makes sense. Yeah, comes from. Yeah, but now, the, but now you see, YC is becoming global, becoming at scale. Mm-hmm. and to me, the way mm-hmm. I view y c now these days, like the recent article I saw the last batch was what, like three hundred seventy seven startups at c mm-hmm. level It just sounds think? like a it, it sounds like a five hundred startups now and this' mm-hmm. they're gonna dilute right Does, do, you, do you agree with this that at scale y c just looks like another five hundred startups and it's you lose some of that earlier edge you have by being smaller, more focused, and uh, higher quality possibly
1: possibly. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on, on the inner you know, workings of YC, right? I again, I just worked in a yeah. YC company, and,
0: and then you know
1: the, these were the doctrine that were passed down um, to all of us, right? Like, okay, watch this video, yeah. watch that video, learn yeah. about product, learn about growth. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. most of the time, it it actually makes a lot of sense, right? But for much smaller companies, um, but when you talk about rocket st- rocket scale uh type of startups you know where you want to grow really really fast um some of these um you know things that they teach actually holds you back
0: yeah yeah well and i think there is a very different flavor in developed markets especially with the competition you face where if you take too long to figure out your little product market field someone's just gonna get a bigger user base than you then figure it out later with money right so mm-hmm. there, there is a, a very different game to be had and um unless you are in a very specific niche that really no one is touching or doesn't really know about, and you could own it and do it really well with, with you know very strong amount of stickiness like very high retention because your product's so amazing and then from there, you know once you're very profitable and growing, then you could jump to other verticals you know so I guess it's a very different approach it's It almost seems like top down versus bottom up right that's what it sounds like exactly So t- why don't you let's apply this kind of context? Uh, from what we talked about in terms of performance marketing to working in a region to YC ideals versus the, you know, German gospel ideas. Um, what what mm-hmm. exactly is Tendered? The, the the YC company you worked for, what what, what do they do?
1: Okay, so Tendered um, basically is a heavy equipment rental marketplace, right? So, so they build this yep. marketplace and if you're a contractor, you get onto the website, you are able to book all sorts of equipment you know, like bulldozers, trucks, um, excavators, and and so on, generators, whatever, um, and and no, yeah. and erased raised based on that idea. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and there seems to be a very similar startup though uh, mm-hmm. that that kind of blew up. It's quite infamous, right? Uh, Katera mm-hmm. is is that very similar to what Tender is doing? Um, it's different
1: because Katera actually uh, focuses on housing. Uh again they got they got funded I think by the Saudi government as well as Softbank. So they're they're very, yep. very uh big actually. Mm-hmm. Uh
0: also very so it's, it's it's the same industry, but I guess coming in from a different angle,
1: right? Correct. Correct. Ours is just mainly focused on rentals, you know. It's a it's a pure okay. rental business. Um, you know, it on a surface it looks like a really simple business, but uh, when you dive deeper is actually much more complicated uh, because, again, construction yeah. is a very entrenched industry. Um, if you look back in history, right, um, for the past yeah. maybe seven seven decades, um, you, you don't really see much change, right? Like, uh, while everyone has gone online, uh, these guys seem to have, like, uh, not gone online.
0: Yeah, so that's a very interesting point. And mm-hmm. especially like, you know, with Katera, you know, blowing up, do you think this kind of construction space, is it going to be like another rework where it shouldn't be VC driven because the technology does add a premium, but it doesn't scale like a tech startup. Is that what you're seeing? Or is it different?
1: I didn't, I didn't get the point. Um, so you were saying, well,
0: I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm alluding to the fact <laughs> that, you know, Katera kind of blew up. Uh, is, is this kind of, in the construction space, specifically with technology, right? You definitely get a premium by using technology, but it might not scale like a like a VC, you know, software company, for example. And I think that was a problem. With WeWork, right? They tried to value it as a technology company, but VC doesn't really work for it. You probably should be doing debt or some other type of financing, right? Is do you think the construction space is very similar to this or no?
1: Well, construction space is different um, from the consumer uh, space because it's it's very. Um, business the business driven B2B and you know in, in the case of uh, you know, operating the Middle East, majority of the projects are government funded. So mm. um, it adds a layer of complexity when it comes to um, financing, collecting uh, what is due and so on. yeah okay. now, when, when, you're just, when you're just dealing with, with the end consumer right like when you sell them something, uh it's, it's really much easier um uh, you can predict when cash is coming in yeah like the moment they purchase it from you you know cash is coming in right and then you can manage yeah. your growth based that but when it's a business or it's a government entity um that is the one who is supposed to pay you um you don't know right yeah Especially with, with covid you know uh Businesses are yeah. uh, delaying payments, you know. Uh, so I think that's becoming mm-hmm. very, very common. And and so if I were to invest in the B2B uh, space right now, um, I would be very wary of that. They are like huge. Um, you know, you may need to employ like collections, problems. collections team,
0: you know, and, and so on,
1: which yeah. are problems that you don't really face yeah. if you operate, uh, you know, B2C, for example
0: yeah and to me though, exactly that's, that's a, the, the point I was alluding to. It does seem like this doesn't scale as nicely as a you know pure tech B2c marketplace where you know you just pour some money on then the user grows and economics you know kind of work with product market fit, right It just seems like this is a lot harder problem and um, but it seems that you know once you're in YC though people put you in that category where they, they expect you to kind of grow like that. So do you see this as a problem for tendered or do you think they've kind of figured it out or it doesn't really matter?
1: Well, I think Tandret is um, has figured out um, some parts of the business, but there are certain certain parts that are still working on figuring it out. You know, I have faith in the team, uh, in the founder, mm-hmm. um, that, that things will work out. You know, um, the funny thing is, um, during the shutdown, you know, like many economies shut down, uh, you know, construction was still yeah. going on in, in the Middle East because they had deadlines, right? So there are many mega yeah. projects that we were involved in. Um there's this Expo twenty twenty. Now it's Expo twenty twenty one. Um yeah. in in the UAE. And then um, you know, in Saudi there's a lot of mega projects going on as well, right? Um uh, with yeah. the new uh uh leader in place, you know, he has a lot of ideas and and so we're seeing like a, a boom actually uh in construction. Um so I think that part, you know um is is very positive because you see a lot of money going into the space but i would say for construction business um and and because we are in the construction space um if we manage to raise um if tender for example managed to raise more money um we will feel the growth for sure and 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 to to sign an example of uh, katerra um basically they grew really fast um you know with the investment from SoftBank and the Saudi government. And because they had the connections, mm-hmm. right, already with the Saudi government, um, you know, all these large housing projects and settlements, um, you know, they were given the yeah. contracts for that, right? Like, just... Mm. They, so that's why they grew. And um, again, it is a scalable business model because, you know, they, they, they offer, I think, prefab um, housing, right? So it's fabricated in, in, yeah. in a factory. And, you know, it's not like you're going there and, and you're going to build it from the ground up, um, organizing labor and whatnot, right? It's totally different. It's all made in the factory.
0: Well, that's what they thought. But I think the further they went down the supply chain, they found out that there's it's very old school still. And they tried mm-hmm. to end up building it everything. And then, of course, it just didn't really work out. Uh, the, they put all the money to try to build the whole supply chain, but you, you, know, if if, you know a few, you know billion dollars yeah. is not going to cut it. You're give you an about, example, a trillion dollar
1: right? industry, right? <laughs> uh, I will give you yeah. an example. Uh, so, in tender, uh, you know we are in the business of hiring out machines, right? And so you might be wondering, like, it, what business do we have uh, managing these, uh, drivers, this uh, equipment? Um, you know, these guys who drive the equipment, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, I may be surprised that we we have to be very hands-on because, you know, again, the performance, the productivity on a site uh, relies on the discipline Mm, uh, of these operators, right? So we call them operators. And we have had cases where, you know, there were crashes on site, you know, like the dump truck overturned. Mm. And then we found out that this guy was drinking outside. (laughs) Oh my god! So, like, do you really want to go into like the intricacies of, you know, managing the person itself? Of course, no. Um, But you get to make point, right? Like, we are in the human rental business, but you have to handle the person too. So it gets very complicated at times. And then these are the things that operations have to deal with.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, if you're not a domain expert, like I I have a little bit of experience understanding developers uh, and and kind of working closely, somewhat closely to them. And man, the the layers of complexity is very deep. You know, like the amount of people, like they just subcontract to subcontractors to subcontractors, and like you know, you you sometimes don't even know what you're getting at the end of the day. You know, so it's and then like as as you know, a founder, you know, sometimes you need founders who are you know um, brand new to the space to give a fresh perspective, but if they don't do the homework or ask enough questions or get to, you know, the real deep, deep root causes of problems, you know, you end up with Kateras. So there, there is something, something to be careful to, to look at, I guess. Um, Right. But, but I guess, like you said, you, you know, is there something special about the founders or the YC company tender that gives you belief in them? Or why don't you contrast your experience for us? Like, you know, working at a YC company versus your rocket experience and what Mm -hmm. gives you this belief?
1: Well, there's a there's less belief in, in, burning cash uh, to solve problems, right? Mm. Like you want to use yes. the, uh, the talent that you have, you know, the great power that you have to actually solve real problems. And, and I think that is really something to look up to because, you know, um, on the surface, we are operating in a heavy equipment rental uh, marketplace, yeah. but we really want to solve this um, construction industry, right? Um, it's over-reliance yeah. on manual labor, for example, right? and so mm-hmm. we have actually invested into uh, ai automation uh, that sort of thing you know uh, we were developing in house this uh, ai uh, algorithm um, that works with the video feed that we have um to basically mm. predict like okay uh, how long uh and how many equipment that you actually need uh, like how long these machines actually need to work on site and how many equipment yeah. do we actually really need on site? Because most of the time it's based on guesstimates, right? So the site manager right. would just, or the project manager would say, okay, I think we need like 10 bulldozers and 20 trucks, right? And then it's all based on guesswork, right? Like based from yeah. the gut. But we want to use uh, machine learning, you know, and data to basically um, be precise about that because, um, at the end of the day, it's, it basically impacts your cost, right? Like, uh, yeah. it's not only about the rental cost of these equipment. You have to pay for fuel, you have to pay for the operator. And, you know, if you're late in delivering a project, you are gonna get fines as well. So all these are the costs, which is yeah. why, you know, in construction, you always see um, delays and you always see, yeah. um, you know, developers having to end up uh, pay extra in fines yeah. and and those fines can be huge imagine if it's like 10 or 20 percent extra right yeah. so this is the problem that we really want to solve but it takes a lot of time interesting
0: yeah so essentially what you're saying is not it's not a simple marketplace that like kind of we see in what we see in the flavor from the last 10 years in asia where if you just throw money you acquire users then you have something big this is actually a deep tech hard problem mm-hmm uh, on a service level, it's the simple operating marketplace with a take rate for you know uh, for for operating these you know equipments and sell, you know renting them out. But uh, at the end of the day, like you said, it's about productivity. But you need to use real deep tech and to to do that. Um, my follow up question for that would be: Do you think how, what does the founders say about this? Is this going to be uh, a piece of technology that you develop that's a feature of a larger construction company, so it's an acquisition target, or do you, does, do they feel this is going to be a unicorn in the company itself that's going to be full-scale powering construction
1: well it's being developed towards um you know it's so what we're developing right now uh because you know in order to have machine learning uh going uh you need to do yeah. uh, your data collection right so we have installed yeah. all these um cameras and um in, in most of our equipment telemetry. right and yeah. uh, we have been getting data isn't that right but the larger picture is that we want to sell it as a platform, as a SaaS in the future. Mm, okay.
0: So how do you think about it then as, because you were hired initially as a growth person to grow the company. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, initially I was hired as an operations person. And then when, when I went there, oh, okay. then they were <laughs> like, you know, I think it'd better as a growth person, I'm like, okay, give me whatever you want. <laughs> I
0: mean, if they, well, I guess that's the problem with interviewing. They, they, always try to typecast for a certain role, but they find out, you know, mm-hmm. you're better fit for something else. I mean, it else. happens but in I, startups,
1: I so. right? Like, you have to be flexible, yeah, fluid, oh. adaptable.
0: Yeah. So, so how did you think about it from a so sort of growth perspective, given what we talked about? You know, the place to should build SaaS, these kind of hard tech problems that you further you go down, it gets more complicated. Mm-hmm. How does one go up, especially at this, this is kind of early stage, you guys only raised about 5.8 million, right?
1: 5.8 uh, million seed.
0: Yeah, correct. Which is very early stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, two thousand twenty. I think? I forget. Yeah, maybe one or two years ago. About, about um, one and
1: a half two years ago. Yeah.
0: Especially at that stage, um, do you guys feel you have strong product market fit? And if so, then how do you think about the growth? Or how mm-hmm. do you, how do you, you know be, being transitioned from ops to growth person? How mm-hmm. do you think about it?
1: Well, I think it's it's uh, really really complicated, right? Uh, so even yeah. when at the time where I left. Um, there was still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, for example, right, like if we were to transition um from being a marketplace to being a SaaS provider, uh, would there be any takers, right? Mm. Because right now people employ our services, you know, on the basis that they need somewhere to move sand, you know, to move certain materials. Yeah. yeah. You know. There's a lot of sand to in the Middle East, right? Like when you are building up the all sand. You have <laughs> sand and you stack it on, on top yeah. of other piles of sand <laughs> yeah yeah all sand <laughs> so i think that remains to be to be answered i think um there's a huge focus on SaaS right now because um, obviously we want to scale so okay unfortunately i can't give that answer right now yeah because i
0: have no idea if you were to think about it, best guess, if you're pivoting to SaaS for away from marketplace, is this product a bottom-up or top-down? So is it delivering it as a product for people to use, then more people adopt it, or do you have to sell it to the CIOs, CFO, whoever is in charge? Mm-hmm. How, how does that work? Well,
1: um, from my experience, it actually starts from the top-down. So we, we usually would okay. approach a lot of CEOs, the C-levels, right, um, to actually be selling this, yeah. this vision. And then also let me let me clarify that this SaaS product actually includes the marketplace. Uh because sourcing is uh, actually a, a huge part of, of the business um that we don't want to see uh you know we, we, that we don't want to yeah. go without. So um we we already have a huge database of equipment suppliers, you know, we just gonna offer it, you know. We call it SaaS, but actually the SaaS company is a marketplace from which they can source yeah. the equipment.
0: So uh, if I'm to read in between the lines, because mm-hmm. um, my my earlier question was, you know, comparing uh, rocket style companies versus YC companies. And it seems that you guys are still in the midst of figuring out very strong product market fit and what really works. Correct. And then you're kind of following, you're following the data. Then like, once you have the traction from, you know, executing on the data and hypothesis, if the, there's traction, then you guys will probably go raise. Right. Right. And I guess what we, what we saw in the past with Rocket is just that like, given this region lacks kind of infrastructure, mm-hmm. given these arbitrage opportunities, business models have been deployed, just deploy a lot of capital, get a big kind of user base and figure it out later, right? Which right. is kind of what we've seen in China. We're seeing in Latin America now, right? But so if I may add, right,
1: um, Rocket yeah. doesn't really have like a focus on B2B types of businesses. Because, That's true. Yeah. Because, you know, for B2B, it's not like you stand on a paddle and you pop marketing that it's going to grow overnight, right? It it doesn't work that way. This is all based on connections, you know, and and multiple meetings, right? So I'll share an example. Uh, In in the earlier days, when we tried to get this um, really reputable equipment supplier, right? So we drove all the way to Abu Dhabi from Dubai. So that's about one and a half hour drive. We met with this guy, you know, in the evening at, I think, 4 p.m. And we concluded the meeting at 9 p.m. So it was five hours just sitting there, Mm -hmm. you know, like at first, you know, the first hour it was like, okay, you know, how's your family, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You know, this is the whole culture thing, right? Like, and then you drink coffee, uh, you know, and and the guy smoked a cigarette, you know, multiple Mm -hmm. cigarettes later, he'll be like, okay, I'll think about it. (laughs) And that was the first meeting, right? So we had yeah. like four meetings before the guy agreed to onboard. The second meeting, he brought his wow. mentor, this older guy, you know, that was an yeah. advisor to him, and the guy was like very animated. He's like, I don't think this business is good. I don't think we should run
0: machine.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was the second meeting, right? And then yeah. a couple of meetings after, it was like, okay, I think I will try. I'll give you a few machines to test. Yeah. And and that's how it goes. And imagine, right, like that's just one supplier, you know, and, and even yeah. if the customer is the same, right? It's not like in Asia, like, okay, show me the benefit. Okay, I'm onboarding right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So that's, that's the perfect segue. So working in the Middle East and working in Southeast Asia for so long, uh, aside, so that's a very good example, right? So that is that is that the main difference you think you see where, Meetings and businesses conducted, and more. in I guess what well, I don't know. What do you call it, informal? Or it's more in- like developing relationship first and feeling, right. and then doing deals. And it, Southeast Asia is more transactional. Like if it works, we do it faster. Or what? What, what are you seeing in terms of differences between uh, building right. startups in the Middle East versus Southeast Asia?
1: I think it's less transactional. I think it's based more on a lot of um, referrals uh, because mm. people who. Home- uh if if you refer someone, it means that you actually trust that person right so a lot of yeah. referrals um you know like you know how we actually grew our um, supplier base was through a lot of referrals, so we focus a lot mm-hmm. on that um and it and it really stems from um uh, trust yeah. right like you don't trust someone if you can't if you can't trust someone you you can't do business with that person and I think that 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 has always been the case, right which is why you know they spell hours mm-hmm. to try and get to know you uh because <clears throat> it, it's not only because of the culture right it's, it's also because of uh there, there are huge implications if you trust someone and that person screws you over because um you know the legal system that works in, in different ways right uh yeah. say for example you want to collect from someone who owes you money as a business he has to go through the whole legal process, and sometimes it takes up to like two years. Wow, right? So if you in the long. meantime think about it, if your business you know relies on this this guy, it, most of the time you rely on this customer only, and he's not paying you, could you wait two years to get paid? you know that, that is my question, right? Yeah. so
0: yeah,
1: that is why trust is a big issue over there.
0: I see. I uh, see. Okay. Ah, cool.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense. But you know, again, the whole legal thing, I think it varies from companies to companies. It depends on how strong your case is. But in general, there's a different legal system over there. You know?
0: Different legal in terms of making things harder to do the business, or um does, does it also actually help with having the proper structures in place?
1: Um it's it's just different, right? So uh, I don't know how to really describe it. I'm not a legal expert, but uh, yeah. the way I see it, right, there are pros and cons, you know, for, for any mm-hmm. anything. Um, the pros is that um, the burden is on the person who wants to claim, uh, you know, for the money, right? Interesting. Uh, yeah. Like, you have to prove, you know. So it's, it's basically... Uh, harder to do fraud in a way, but it's also easier to do fraud in many ways if you know the loopholes. That's what you mean. Right? So we have, like, you know, traditionally in the market there are many uh, contractors who delay paying suppliers because they know they can. So, like, the standard paying payment term might be 60 days after you work. So that's technically 90 days. So you need to have 90 days of of free cash flow to fund every project. And these guys might delay it to six months because they can, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's not so easy, uh, which is why I think the only way is that you have cash, um, mm. you know, grow really fast.
0: That's an interesting point. So if you're building something in a space like B2B sales, I guess, uh, w- especially big ticket sizes like machinery, it seems you would just need to raise more money than you probably think. Uh-huh. you know to avoid these kind of problems working capital be massively important yeah. and and so Tendered was like you mentioned earlier was looking at expanding to indonesia what would be the differences there you know working in indonesia then versus say i don't know what, what dubai where you were based um so we are we are operating on the ground uh, in
1: uh, KSA kingdom of saudi arabia as well as UAE. Um, and oh, all are, the other yeah. markets uh nigeria indonesia and India is all SaaS-based. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, we thought that, you know, if we set up a good base. Uh, we have customers line up already who understands our product. Uh, it's much easier to bring the suppliers, the customers together in data art. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, it is definitely a, a wise... M- well, it's, it's not like we have like huge amounts of funding and can prove every country right now. But yeah. I think it's a good start.
0: Any other cultural differences that were shocking working Middle East or Southeast Asia? or I can, I can even give you
1: Africa, like uh, in Nigeria. Um, so I always thought that, okay, uh, you know, the sales cycle um, in the Middle East was pretty slow, especially yeah. in Saudi where it's much slower than the UAE. And then when we went to Nigeria, oh my God. <laughs> 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 next level, huh? <laughs> it's it's really next level, right? Uh, so um, I would say the major difference is that, uh, you know, when you pitch ideas, you usually don't reach the managerial level, right? You will reach yeah. the employee level, you know, maybe an assistant manager and whatnot. And these guys are the most resistant guys that we've ever seen. Like, they don't usually share new ideas. Uh, with the managers, you know, for fear of backlash, you know, for fears of losing the jobs, you know, versus in the UAE, for example, like we would pitch little managers and they're they're always happy to arrange meetings with their founders, their CEOs. Mm -hmm. So I I think that there is like a clear difference there. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, you know, in in Nigeria, it takes a lot of time for you to travel. Uh, Traffic is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, People Mm -hmm. prefer face-to-face meetings because there's a lot of scams. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas uh, in the Middle East, because of COVID, you know, they are more open to doing Zoom calls. Mm-hmm. Like you have a call okay, on the Zoom, int- like presenting your SaaS, your product, right? And they're happy yeah. to entertain that. Um, but in, in Nigeria, it's always like face to face, and then you have to show your ID card as well when you enter the company. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I'm sure they've had a lot of problems where people were were you know, tra- pretending to be someone else and did, did something nefarious, right? So, <laughs> um, Is is there anything then, you know, across these three regions, Africa, Middle East, and Southeast Asia, you know, when you think about terms of, you know, doing an early stage startup or growing to a big business or scaling, are there any common strategies or proven strategies that work across all three? Or, you know, is growing different across all three regions? I think it's different. Um, but one unifying aspect, uh,
1: you cannot overlook is getting the trust. And and there are different ways to get trust in Asia, right? Like for example, um if you're talking about Southeast Asia, when you say that, that you, you buy something and you get something free, you know, it's taken for granted, right? It's like, okay, everyone no. gives free. When you go to the Middle yeah. East, um, sometimes they say no. For example.
0: <laughs> just yeah.
1: Right? And yeah, I mean in in, in Africa, they like free. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brave, worst it, war. <laughs> it varies from region to, to, to region, you know, um, yeah. uh, by the end of the day, you the have to do what it takes, you know, whatever it takes to get people's trust. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, it takes uh, varying times, right? Like, ages, maybe mm-hmm. faster. Um, like you said, right? It's, it's mainly based on, okay, what can I profit from, from this deal, for example, right? Yeah. And then in the Middle East, it's not only about the profit that you could get from the deal, but whether or not this guy would pay me, right? So yeah. you have all these things. Uh, and then in Africa, you know, it's this different again.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good insight. Um, you have you left tendered, or you're still working with them? I, I left uh, five months ago, or five months. So so what happened? You you were uh, jaded with rocket. Did you also become jaded with the YC company or what happened?
1: Well, I I wasn't jaded, right? So funny story is uh, last year, I wanted to come back to back right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, because of COVID, I couldn't travel and I had to apply and go through the whole legal loophole thing, you know, getting like a Mm -hmm. permit, come back here. And that took like a couple of months. So, you know, I I told the founder, right? And it's great. Like, he's like, you know what? Um, Why don't you work from home, right? Hmm. so I'm like are you sure I mean like I'm not going to be in office not going to be able to oversee the team and stuff but he was like go for it so I did and then you know I realized that the work from home thing it's not working for me like I was working from home for Hmm. I think a good uh, six months probably and then I realized that hey you know what I'm not really adding much value Um, so I decided that things better that I just uh, part ways
0: yeah And you had some shares in the company still that you vested? Um, Yes, I do. Okay, so I guess hopefully they they continue to grow. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, like, uh, I hope so. But uh, I think the most important thing is that they have, like, throughout the pandemic, they have been able to uh, retain jobs. I think think that was really important. Because, you know, Uber, uh, for example, I think... uh, called Kareem and UAE, I think they were letting go of a lot of people. Yeah, so a lot of companies are letting go of people um, during the pandemic. And I think, you know, yeah. it's, it's good that are not doing that.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 good that they were able to, uh, you know, continue operations despite COVID because like everything here, con- construction completely halted. I uh, think things in, in Malaysia and Singapore are starting to finally open up. I, I don't know about Thailand. Are, are things opening up there?
1: Um, things are opening up right now, uh, but the curfew is still in place. So curfew is like nine PM to four AM. So basically, um, if you're gonna drink, you have to drink before eight in a bar. Okay. <laughs>
0: oh, okay. Well, you still can go out at least. Yep. Okay, Chung. Uh, I guess for the the I guess for the last question. Um, you know. So now now that you've been. You've seen all kinds of companies. You, you worked at really big companies. You scaled big companies. You started your own companies. You worked for a YXC company. Uh, what's in store for you next? You know what, What's the plan besides consulting for companies, besides trading money and investing? Um, what, do you, what do you see yourself doing for the next uh, 10 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually also consulting for a cryptocurrency exchange here in Thailand. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of putting that on hold right now because there's a lot of things going on. Um, you know, my, my core focus right now is actually uh, managing the fund. So uh, you know, okay. I started really early in, in crypto, um, which is why I have the capital right now. And, and we are focusing a lot on, on uh, decentralized finance uh, projects. I'm not investing mm-hmm. um, on the equity level uh, per se. Uh, we're starting off by investing into the tokens itself. You can say it's speculating or it's gambling. Okay. It's fine, <laughs> but that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know, uh, we have a uh, good sized fund, uh, but I think we will be branching out. Um, sold, you know, like um, being mini VCs and and stuff. But uh, I need to start by hiring an analyst. So I yeah. think it's it's really tough. You know, we have interviewed quite a lot of people, um, but a lot of them mm-hmm. don't grow up crypto (laughs) is, so it looks like i trade somewhat from the ground up so yeah it's going to be interesting
0: my my take has been that crypto is so big in thailand at least maybe in the entrepreneurship circle that i feel it's sucking all of my friends who are based in thailand into crypto like everyone Mm -hmm. that i know is doing some form of crypto now so it's interesting that you point out that even new talent though still don't know so it's just still you know the beginning of the, ice, the tip of the iceberg still right so, um and so what exactly did you want to solve so you were managing a fund but do you want to go deeper into actual blockchains and actual making your own coin your own token or no building out infrastructure
1: um, you know right now with the um i would say in terms of regulation there's not much clarity although mm. um countries like thailand like Malaysia like Singapore have come out you know, to say that, okay, you could trade it, uh, it's legal, yeah, but there's no clear framework, right? So I don't want to be touching yeah. that part where, you know, I'm issuing my own tokens because I think there is a risk um, yeah. and I'm just going to be focusing on investing, um, you know, into projects investing right now that. Uh, yeah. at yeah. that level. But, you know, in the long run, you know, I, want, I want to grow a fund, a much larger fund. So I think, I think that okay. is the goal. But what excites me every day is that there's a lot of things um, that you can learn uh, in the space, especially, you know, with NFTs, uh, the funny story yeah. about NFT is that, uh, so I work with another guy and, and we, we call it, a uh, like we call it our team, right? Eh. So we have been investing in NFTs, I think since the beginning of this year. And nice. it's, it's actually quite crazy, but we, we did not actually buy into, um, the ones that went crazy, you know unfortunately, so I would say that it's still a step in the dark uh, for nFTs yeah. it's, it's not that simple. A lot of NFTs that are issued today it's the prices are going up because of pure speculation. and so how sure. do you actually value these NFTs? you know we have not really figured it out. Um, yeah. so that that is the thing that we want to narrow down into the exact science. you know how do you actually value nFTs beyond? Um, views, right? Because how NFTs are valued these days are based on views alone.
0: Yeah, and and NFTs for the people who are not familiar with the crypto space are non-fungible tokens. Um, What's a real-world example that someone could understand easily of what an NFT is? I'm not an
1: expert in this, but uh, you mean like a real-world example um, of the... how,
0: How can someone conceptualize an NFT? Like, what is it?
1: Well, basically... NFT, as you know it these days, is packed against a JPEG, right? It's a digital art. Um, I think the most famous one is the one created by people. I think we sold to this guy in Singapore for $69 million.
0: Wow. It's
1: just That's a crazy. JPEG.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. What I realized, it's, it's very similar to the art market. So it's yeah. highly dependent on supply and demand. And the why reason why the art market goes up so well is because uh, if something's really chased after there's only one painting or one piece of art that that is in supply so mm-hmm. naturally you know people chasing the men if they really want it and what i realized was nfts is that especially if you look at you know video gaming like why do people pay for skins and all this kind of stuff because number one you have a very big community at it with the community, then it forms the economy, and with the economy, right, then people set the prices of, you know, what is beautiful, what's not beautiful, what do they want, Why does what someone spend, you know, a few thousand dollars for the skin, why does this one only worth a few pennies, right? And it's just, you know, it's it's how it's utilized within the community and the games. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the, the the key is bridging the world of actual communities and real usage of NFTs in those communities. Correct. So, you know, if, if I'm valuing it, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of valuing like art plus combination of community plus combination of, you know, what is valued in that community and then who's the creator of the creator economy in that community to, to provide that, that, you know, artistic value. Right. So, right. But, but I don't know. I, I also have not, I, I don't know anything about it.
1: But well, you know what, what is exciting is that um, what is actually coming for NFTs is the ability to collateralize your NFT. Uh, to get a loan, yeah. So I think that that is um, yes. that is yeah. coming, you know, and, and it's going to be very yeah. exciting because you know um, w- one of the reasons why um, people are looking forward to this uh, technology, right, is ability to collateralize your NFT is, is so that you could generate like cash flow off it. If you're if you're a a very rich guy, right, like you wouldn't mind just keeping yeah. your your NFT somewhere in a wallet, right. But if Correct. half of your portfolio is in NFTs, then, you know, you got to pay bills, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. And and the the infrastructure already exists, right? I, I mean, I, I don't want to get too deep in crypto, uh-huh. I mean, unless you want to go for it. But um, it sounds like, you know, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations now, right? They already have the infrastructure based off the Ethereum for, for peer-to-peer lending. Exactly what you said. But I guess what right. you're saying is they're building out the infrastructure for... I guess what the there for traditional DAOs of peer to peer lending, you put money in for, uh, of your coin and then people borrow off that, that value, right? But what you're saying is that if you put my, NF, my, put my piece of art here, you could also lend off that and then make money and interest off that instead, right?
1: Right, right. And, and even right now, as, as we speak, I think this week or last week, they launched um, a couple of projects, they launched the ability for you to. Um, on these NFTs, therefore creating a floor price uh, for all the NFTs. Mm. So that, that creates so, a certain amount of liquidity yeah. in the market because before people were like, man, this thing is going to zero, man. This thing is going to zero. <laughs> it's going to be worth nothing. But it's not true yeah. now, right? Because you have people placing a floor price on on all the top NFTs right now.
0: Well, what's happening is the there's, I mean, like, if you really think about how internet and mobile kind of unfolded, this is just like early day classified infrastructure, right? People are building that infrastructure, even just the power that classifies itself. Right. It classifies itself was such, such an unsophisticated way to think about right. you know, how e-commerce unfolded and the complexity of that. So I think right now we're, we're at the very, very early stages of early adopters, and it's just going to take a long time to get transparency, technology, infrastructure, to understand, the, to have real clarity on the mechanics of what is real supply and what's real demand at a very given moment and real time. Right. And once, like you said, so once that floor price is there, and, you know, of course, there's always going to have that layer of speculation, whether that be 1%, 90%, 99% speculation. But, like, at least you have some fundamental thing tracking that value over time that that provides the basic infrastructure to then grow on top of it and build on top of that. And so, I think, you know, if if we look at the next few decades of, you know, how e commerce unfolded, crypto is going to be a crazy explosion, probably. Right. I think so. I think so.
1: And, I think you spoke earlier about some of your friends uh, entering the space. You know, I'm not sure if they actually founded their own projects. Yeah. Okay. Because, you know, right now developers are, are, are really, really hot in this space, right? So yes, you talk yeah. about like a really, Correct. really good developer. You're asking for maybe 400K uh, US dollars, you know, per year.
0: We're talking for the, the out- best of the best though, right?
1: Like decently
0: best. Because even, even the lowest Decently developers... best, okay.
1: <laughs> because yeah. the really good ones, they expect millions, right? So like 400k, yeah, I would yeah, yeah, say, yeah. would be like the, the median expectation. And on top of that, an option to also um, get vested uh, tokens, yeah. which probably get will the, get the it coin, it, right? So I think this is why right. it's attracting a lot of people to the space. Um, yeah. But again, there's not enough people, um, experienced people, right? Like it's stretched pretty yeah. thin. So I think you can see a lot of people going to this space um, in the next few years.
0: I mean, we're we're even seeing this as a hard problem for software tech companies, mm-hmm. consumer tech companies, uh, SaaS companies. It's still technology uh, talent, especially in Southeast Asia, is still stretched as as stands. You know, it and, is, it is. Um, so it, we're we're still very early days. So I mean, I guess also at the same time, I guess if you want to be a specialized marketer or if you want to be a specialized uh, developer or engineer right It's probably a good place to start, you know uh, too much demand chasing too little talent again. I Think
1: so, yeah um, would you,
0: would you be interested in, in investing in a, a crypto startup? Does your fund do that or no? What kind of stuff? Uh, my friend's building a wallet out of Paris, and he's looking to raise his next round. He actually had some pretty good uh, crypto investors before, okay. and they found some pretty good use cases around the uh, digitalizing the future of work, right? Mm-hmm. so they would you can you can pay like a uh, freelance or or you could play your regular employees in crypto, and it's a wallet that kind of powers this okay. Um, do, do you how, how do you think about those kind of um, opportunities? Do you do that kind of investing or do you just do more of the trading side?
1: Uh, I think it's it's, it's a is a it sounds good but I'm not sure. I have to look at the deck and, and, and to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Well, I'll, I'll yeah, to you on after you this. You know, <laughs> like
1: 80% of our funds are basically uh, deployed uh, into the tokens
0: right now. Okay. Token uh, um, space. Okay.
1: We are medium to long-run, uh, long-term investors. We don't do the short-term uh, over-trading kind of thing. Okay. But I think for the most part, you know, because we yeah. have entered the market uh, since the beginning, since the end of last year right so i think we're in a a, a really good uh, position right now i think you've seen like recent drawdowns as well uh which we're not really concerned about so
0: well i think you're in a very good position i still think crypto so early in the stage and you have a chance to become like a a kind of VC player too so like if you're medium you know medium to long term if you get any windfalls you could Mm -hmm. use some windfalls and pull it back to build out the you know fund the players in the ecosystem for them to keep growing. So it's a pretty good virtuous cycle if you could uh, manage to work that out and maybe you'll be a big VC player in crypto industry. You know what
1: VCs are doing these days? They are investing in these crypto projects, right? And they know that money is probably going to take some time to come back. And so these projects are then issuing tokens so that the VCs can sort of
0: cash out. Uh, So give them liquidity. Correct. Um, So
1: so this is what's happening in this space right now, which is why... You know, you can see like every Tom, Dick and Harry um, project is issuing their own tokens. But 90% of these tokens, you know, have zero value.
0: Does this lead to a bubble or is this a problem or is this good for the... I think the it
1: could system? be a problem in the long run. Um, and I mean, like no one knows how far this can go. Um, in in fact, we have seen like, uh, you know, so Bitcoin went to 60k above 60k. Yeah. And then it dropped to like 29k, you know, and people were like, okay, this is the end. And then it went back up again recently to 53K. And people were like, okay, this is the start of the bull market, right? So like no one really knows. I think the most important thing for us, at least for me, is to invest in strong fundamentals, right? So companies yeah. that make money, projects that make money. Um, I think I think that's really important for us. And but in this yeah. space right now, like the most common thing that you hear is I mean it I I'm in it for the tech. So, like, what tech, bro? Yeah. No idea.
0: <laughs> so,
1: that, there is a lot of speculation, definitely.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. Um, everyone's still trying to figure out that answer, right? What's the, what's the thing that, you know, takes it along to the next level? And how do you keep mm-hmm. compounding that? Then at some point or another, it becomes compounding. Then you're in the J-curve where it's exponential, right? But the problem is you won't see it because you're in the middle of it. But, uh, by the time you see it's already too late, right? you missed the train or you're hopefully riding it up, which I think you will be if you keep doing what you're doing. Well,
1: I mean, like, uh, there were some that we missed as well, uh, but it's not all too bad, you no. know. Uh, we we had our yeah. gains already, but, you know, it's never enough, right? There, there was this meme yeah. that I came across yesterday, um, you know, this whole meme economy right now. It's huge, right? Yeah, so, um, of course. As normal guys, you know, like, okay, uh, we just need like, you know, a couple of mil to retire, you know, like have a good life. But these guys in crypto, yeah. it's like, if you don't have 50 mil, you're not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> this was what <laughs> the meme was about. And I was like, man, this is hilarious. And it's so true. Because, you know, the insane amount of gains that you make, you know, like recently this one project, I think it ran like 10x uh, within a month or something. And a lot of yeah. people were shouting about it, you know. We were not in that. So I guess we are well, the <laughs> Yeah. So, so my question back to you is, if crypto yeah. is moving this fast, right, and you can see the exponential gates, now do you think all the future startups will be in the crypto space, you know, instead of trying to fix real-world problems? Because I think this is a good um, example, right? Like why you should be in a crypto startup. It's that
0: well, I I think the way I think about that and I'm still exploring and uh, listening and learning and talking to people, right? But uh the way the meta- the metaverse unfolds, right? The way that you know how content, media, how you know VR and even finance like crypto, right? This it's all gonna somehow bundle together. Crypto's just gonna be a part of that, right? Regardless. It's and you know, if, if you think about crypto, it's just another form of fiat, you're just shifting one part of belief to another belief.
1: Correct.
0: Uh, I still haven't figured out the mechanisms of how that interacts in the real world like mm-hmm. what are the real world's effects of different types of monetary systems I don't quite understand yet um, some people are convinced that you could just completely switch over I'm not fully convinced that really makes sense because if you're think about modern financial theory and how business cycles work right it's um, it's still an early experiment since you know post-world War two so it's it's like we haven't right. don't even fully understand the repercussions of everything we do with modern modern fiat, and now you right. add into the mix of, you know, digital, how does that work? So, but I, I think it's an important facet because on a technological level, and I've talked to other crypto experts about this, is that there is real world efficiencies to using digital currencies, right? It's just more efficient. You know, you will save costs because in, in in the current system, you know, there's just too much middle technology that's old and, and that just adds to the cost of it. So you can't escape it. So I, I think in one sense, you're right. You know, you having some portion of your portfolio, if you're an investor, you probably need to be in crypto. So when I think about angel investing, I'm thinking, you know, yes, I want to invest in my friend's crypto startup to get some exposure. Right? right. I don't know if that's the right ticket. But I mean, it's a lottery ticket. Who knows? But <laughs> I, I would like some some exposure. So if you have a fund, you know, let me angel invest in you, and then you know, I get my exposure there. Um, for traditional software startups, yes and no. I think you only worry about it to the point where time converges. So, like, say if you're a traditional SaaS company, I'm talking to a lot of local players and crossover funds in Southeast Asia who want to build SaaS. And it's lots a lot of them are tied to these big corporate companies who also want to get exposure to their old technology that they want to update. Those companies don't need to worry for the next five to ten years about crypto because building SaaS is still so nascent in Southeast Asia. Like it's the the talent, the 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 you know the tech. Um, learning the correct sales cycle, like having too much customer support because people want handholding in Asia versus the West. They just want to do it themselves. They want tools versus people, right? It's just a different flavor completely. So I think for the next cycle, for the next 10 years, it's not going to be a problem. If you're not in cryptos, you still can make a lot of money. But mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, beyond 10 years, 15, 20, 30, you can't ignore it. That that's, that's a fact. The worlds are just going to converge where everything bundles together. And, you know, if you're early now, now, and you can find a way to be sustainable now, and you find out the right niche, you're probably going to have a crypto gold mine. You know, I'm going to probably visiting your palace in Phuket and Bali or wherever you want to buy in the future. So <laughs> that's, that's the way I think about it. I don't know.
1: Do you agree or no? Well, I think with SaaS it's kind of like a hit and miss, um, which is why you know from a VC perspective, right? If you invest into a crypto. Uh, project, you know, it doesn't mean that they're using crypto. Maybe it just means that yeah. brand themselves as yeah. one, you know, and they issue tokens. You know, that is mm. already uh, a way for you to de-risk because you cash out by selling the tokens, you're done. Like, okay, maybe yeah. you you put in like 200k into the startup, and yeah. you have got like apple a mil, you know, in tokens. So
0: why do you care? Right. I think there's two ways to think about that. Um, one, that's just financial engineering. It's just people trying to get quick wins because they have too much money. They they probably need to get a return for the investors to have like to show that they've returned money to investors to raise the next fund. The other way to think about it is that you could think of it as another form of market making. So this provides liquidity to the market for them to actually use the money to kind of fund it to get some type of terms on funding. It hopefully it doesn't blow up and become a bubble, which it might. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can think of it as them being what bankers do to the modern financial system now, where they're they're market makers. They they have their own books to trade, right? Right. But it provides the liquidity for people to use that money then to plow it back into infrastructure, plow it into talent, real technology. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're gonna have the percentage of people who are scamming. That's just part of the part of the game, but you know, <laughs> um, so that's the positive negative, I guess you could see. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think so. So I mean that's how I see um, you know, investing in in startups, you know. I think it's going to evolve towards that, but I'm, I'm not sure if it's going to take 10 years. You know, maybe it's much sooner, but I think what okay. will cool back, um, like what might hold down progress, right, uh, will be the lack of talent, right? So I think we started the show by talking about the lack of marketing talent, I mean, performance marketing talent. Yeah, correct. Lack of um, developers in this region as well, and, but in particular, mm-hmm. those who know uh, blockchain, Right, those who can yeah. basically read solid, Real, yeah. solidity, right, uh, which is the, the code mm-hmm. for Ethereum. Um, so I think maybe because of that, then it could stretch to ten years.
0: Well, then you know, of course, talent. I think I completely agree with you, and it's the same problem for the traditional tech tech startups, which a lot of people think about all these coding schools and how to make quick cash on those kind of plays, right? But um, not to go off on attention, but so then, talent, yes. But then how do you think about the regulation piece, right? Um, so there was one country in Latin America that banned it. China is fully investing in it. Uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore are thinking about some type of unified infrastructure to start thinking about digital currencies, right? So right. how do you think about, you know, of course, talent, I think, can be solved eventually. If enough money comes into it, you, people will flood to it. There's, they're going to go through cycles of learning. Then, you know, just like how we are from 10 years ago, now in Southeast Asia for tech startups. But what about regulation? How how does that unfold, and what is the you know where where is it a problem, and where does it accelerate?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think regulation is already here,
0: right? Um,
1: the the thing mm-hmm. is, the thing is for these regulators, what really matters is the ability to control the on ramp and off ramp, meaning that when you okay. are converting your Bitcoin into Malaysian Ringgit, for example, right, or into US dollars, yeah. uh, that's what matters because. Um, they want to track you. You know how you spend your money. Uh, I think I think that that is actually the core problem that they're trying to solve right now, which is why you've seen, um, for example, many exchanges uh, taking off some some trading pairs. Um, you know mm-hmm. when you know it's maybe maybe Bitcoin against Ringgit. You know they're removing it. For example, mm. uh, it depends, right? And and then like yeah. again, uh, I would I would basically attribute it. Back to the need for governments to control the on-ramp and off-ramp, because with that, then they can also tax you.
0: Yeah, correct. Yeah,
1: like okay, why are you removing this amount of money? You know, like okay, then you have to justify
0: yeah, exactly
1: controls and stuff.
0: Well, it seems that China's going to be the best suited for that. They have almost absolute control of your digital footprint. And, right. You know, Europeans and Americans fight against that. They, they they don't want the government to centralize that kind of power, mm-hmm. um, because but but at the end of the day, though, if you if you want it to if you want to control the distribution point you need real world kyc you almost needs to come from the government itself where you have you need to be centralized from somewhere then you could tie the the currency or the crypto to that otherwise it just doesn't really work right right
1: right yeah i think it's going to take some time uh for sure but you know as an example of how countries are uh, like malaysia and thailand are currently like uh like Thailand is specific, right? How they are taxing cryptocurrency traders right now Mm -hmm. is that, you know, whenever you place a trade, um, there is a certain brokerage fee that's charged. Okay. Um, That brokerage fee um, is taxed. So they put like a 7%, I think 7% um, value added tax on it. Mm. So that 7% goes to the government. and, And that's how the taxation is happening right now. Because well, that sounds pretty um, efficient. Yeah, I think that's the most efficient because um, it's hard yeah. to tell if you're making money from a trade. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. It, it's it's yeah. going to require a lot of oversight, uh, you know, huge gov- government machinery. Whereas yeah. this, you know, like just putting a, a value added tax on it, um, you know, it's it's really simple. And you know, you should mm-hmm. see the amount of people that trade, you know, daily fees that, that are generated you know that's enough for now yeah correct
0: yeah i mean for sure and like what happens is that when the government really sees this as a real revenue source then i think the the regulation regulation piece becomes more clear mm-hmm. um how are you seeing that that kind of happening in singapore and malaysia or other parts of southeast asia are are the regulators up to pace are they taxing as well or what does it look like
1: well um talking about regulators up to pace i think singapore is probably up there um yeah Simply because, um, okay. So there was this recent rumor, you know, Binance, right? So Binance is looking yeah, for yeah. a country that they can settle in, and there was news that not, not Binance, China, I guess. <laughs> there was news that Binance was going to raise huge amounts of money from Tomase, um okay, in order to be listed uh, there, and yes, mm. you know, to get a license operate from there. And you know, again, no. Binance is valued at what two hundred billion dollars or something. Ridiculous. Yeah, some yeah. some some ridiculous amount, right? And the founder owns like ninety plus percent of the company. That's insane. So he's like probably almost the richest guy in the world. So anyways, yeah, um, you know, then apparently uh Singapore is trying to woo them, right? And it makes sense. Like I think in the future comes Countries will be trying to woo such companies because think about the amount of tax revenue, um, the amount of jobs that it would create. I mean, like, who wouldn't want Binance in their country, right? So I think countries have to, like you have to be friendly to crypto companies um, and you need to have crypto friendly policies if you want to attract them, right? So I think it goes both ways, Um, but
0: it it kind of depends. But there's... There's the argument that crypto unlocks self-regulating autonomous governments themselves. Like You don't need the government if you could have your own community and the decentralization of crypto and blockchain allows that, right? Your own currency, your own community, your own way to run things. So, I mean, do you you see that as being an impediment or do you think the government has enough firepower to attract uh, institutions that are part of the infrastructure that power crypto? Right. So one thing about
1: so many new projects these days are no longer centralized. Um, they are decentralized. You know, they are teams across the yeah. world. And um, so many of these projects, they launch what's called governance tokens, right? So if you have mm. that token, right, you get to vote um, on important decisions. Okay. And, and I think we're definitely moving towards that. You know, like uh, they give mm-hmm. you more control on a project. They don't necessarily dictate the direction on which the project would go. They have a basic roadmap and that's it. Like
0: it, they leave it up to the community. So but that's I, the whole principle of a DAO, right? A right. decentralized autonomous organization. Okay. So that's what you're talking about. Got it. But a uh, DAO very interesting. actually
1: is, um, in its initial inception, it was much more um, simpler than this. Um, like, yeah. Um, because in order for, for people to vote, uh, there needs to be a community first.
0: Okay. Yeah, exactly. But I think a lot of DAOs have formed communities and they have these kind of influential figureheads. So, um, yeah, it, it becomes like any public listed company right now, but much
1: better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when there's important decisions in, in the public listed company, say, for example, in Malaysia, uh, board of directors will decide, right? And and you as an investor, you have no know, right. Uh, sometimes they no. may ask for your opinion, you know, it...
0: Annual general meetings. <laughs> yeah, correct. So, but now, now everyone has it's almost direct, de- uh, direct democracy. Everyone. Yeah, right. yeah. That, that is the model
1: that's adopted. But I think it creates a segue of, or what I wanted to to share actually, um, mm-hmm. in which you know, crypto startups are becoming borderless, right? And yeah, and so, if you think about it, right, the current startup infrastructure. Is is very geographical based. So if you if you start Singapore, you're going to be serving most likely the Singapore market, right? But mm-hmm. and 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 you're limited, right? Because when you want to launch a new country, you have to go there. You have to grow your team. You have to go through yeah. the regulations. You have to open a bank account. So mm. can you really compete against these crypto startups, right? Even
0: right uh, now is going to happen. Yeah. I could see what you mean by you're saying is the future going to be crypto driven startups, because if that's the case, then like I said, then you should flip your model from trading to actual doing crypto VC. Then, you know, this gives another alternative for financing for for um, our customers. And it's almost in a sense where it's kind of crowdsourced. Right. If it's decentralized and everyone's a part of this coin and you're getting money from the coin and you can convert it to fiat and then make real world businesses, you're not tied to you know, a single type of investor base or an LP or interests of that sort, right? Or, And then it's more like, does this community align with my values and can they fund me? And then the the whole community will fund you, right? So it, right. Um, that sounds like a very interesting world, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's something you should consider as a model then, you know? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, you should just be a VC for, you know, crypto VC, right? It sounds great. <laughs>
1: yeah, but VC doesn't have a nice sound to it, like, you know, and it's not liquid investing uh, yeah. at
0: all, right? For, yeah, for now. So, of course, I think there's a few steps to, to liquidity and exchanges right. and regulation, but it, it seems like the next logical projection. I mean,
1: like, I, I cannot bear thinking about the idea that someone is going to use all the funds that I give them, Facebook marketing and Google marketing. So I feel very sad. That's <laughs> because
0: you're the marketer. <laughs> Well, yeah, you're feeding you're feeding Fang, right? And then, which which tells you that Fang, like, you know, despite the valuations, the PE ratios, despite everything, dude, they're still going to grow even more.
1: It's not it's not crazy because everyone, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, right, who's raising money from a VC, they're going to spend on Facebook.
0: Correct, that's true. Well, so what's the alternative to the future then? Where 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 should founders be? You know, is is crypto blockchain the answer? Where there's different communities we can now market to to acquire users or like uh, how do we how do we get off this
1: my opinion i think it goes back again to creating your own community so okay. regardless of what you're selling you know if it's um, blockchain if it's a crypto product or even cosmetics yeah. right you need to have a community
0: it sounds like uh, yc bible here right i'm not sure if it's yc bible or sure but you know no you don't think so okay
1: you need to have the community, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. No, I, I think I agree with you. And then I think, well, that's what, right? Well, if you think about like the Peter Thiel framework of how you build the monopolies, right? It's, it's you know, coming down to, is it scalable? Um, is a brand, right? If you have the brand yeah. around it, um, unique technology that no one can copy, right? Uh, so if if you would think about that, you know, the community is in a sense, one of these brand moats. And you know, if you, you start there, it's, it's, I think there's nothing wrong with that. So it right. uh, makes sense to me.
1: Right, yeah. right. I mean if you think about it, then going back, I mean it's basically going back to the basics of business, right? If you have a shop that you want people to come and frequent, right? It's yeah. always about a community as well. And community comes from happy customers, right? So maybe citing yeah. so YC again, you know, having 10 happy customers is no. better than having 1,000 okay no. customers? No. I don't know.
0: And I think, that, I think the philosophy that, that turns that on its head, though, is what we see, the, the crazy aggressiveness of successful tech companies in China, like the Mate Ones. Because uh, I, I did this in my other podcast, The Level Barbarians, but like, the, do you know what the largest um, segment of revenue for Mate One is? You know, the food delivery company in China? What is their largest segment of revenue?
1: I don't know.
0: Gaming? It's it's tra- it's, it's travel. Travel. Right? So it's not food delivery. They're known for food delivery, right? But they they make most of right. the money from travel. So so what the, I think what I what I'm saying is that like you know, I think China works really well with that. And what I'm realizing is because there's just the infrastructure is missing. So when you have a user base, you can do things with it. Right. Um. But you know that doesn't really work uh, in YC. You're not going to start a food delivery and say you're going to do travel because the travel guys are just going to laugh at you and destroy you probably. <laughs> it's
1: right? so, um, hard to pitch to investors as well. Like not only even like yeah, not 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 only uh, YC but yeah. every other investor yeah. out there, right? Like, say for example, yeah. we had this uh, business that's ongoing, like a rentals marketplace, and then suddenly we want to do SaaS and we want to do logistics. They're gonna be like, yeah. so what do you want to do?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like. So it's interesting because you're a YC company, mm-hmm. but it's interesting you're looking at marketplace and then SaaS. It's like because traditional advice from the West would be like focus on one segment and one model. Don't right. do multiple models. Like the only person who pulled it off was uh, LinkedIn when they were pitching Series B. They said, "I'm going to do all these models."
1: And we have logistics as well, by the way.
0: There you go. Right. Um, so, so maybe you know, there's there's this convergence where. As you and it's, to me, it's more of a globalized play. Like you know, if we do globalize, if we don't decouple to two different Cold War of China versus U.S. Right? If you still want to have like global trade and growth together, it kind of makes sense where you do get user base and you want to try to find ways to increase LTV by other segments that add value right. to your customers. Right? So, right. Um, but I mean, it, it doesn't. I think it's not like one or the other. Like it's, it doesn't detract from the fact that you, you're right. You do need community. You need actual value. You need actual wealth right? But I think the extension of that is how else can we bring even more value, you know, at scale, right? But the question is just like, no, do you do it backwards, top down or bottom up, I guess. And I think we see success on both sides. So I think there's no right or wrong there. I think so. Okay. uh, Any, uh, any final words? Do you want to plug anything? Should we follow you? Or can, if someone wants to connect with you, how can they reach you? Um, Don't follow me. (laughs) Yes. Chang Chong was doing this as a favor. You're a very low profile. My right?
1: my my social media, it's uh, pretty quiet anyways. So there's no point not heavy into it these days.
0: But I do, you do do a lot of crypto advising. So I guess if you're in a crypto space, you'd be interested in talking to crypto people?
1: I guess. But I haven't, to be honest. Because um, okay. yeah. my experience in the past, right, dealing with crypto people is there were a lot of scammy ones. So I just decided, okay, I'm not going to do yeah. it anyone. But I'm pretty sure these days it's much better.
0: Yeah. So what, what, what I'll do after this is connect you to, to my other crypto friend and we'll we'll make sure we get only the clean and the best deal flow so that there's no more no more, no more scammers coming across the horizon. <laughs> but
1: it, you know, to, to that point as well, um I I think connecting is, is always interesting. Um it expands your mind as well, but um you also have to figure out like if you could do anything together, right? Like you kind yeah. sort of have that kind of obligation as well, like to find ways to work together. I don't know. That's just yeah. Um, so I think that's why I've been quite uh, silent in this space.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's you gotta go on another journey, right? Um, you gotta find out what you what you care about. And it seems that you do care about the crypto space. Otherwise, you wouldn't be running this crypto fund, right? And Mm -hmm. I think if you just keep going at it over time, you know, you'll you'll filter out the noise and you're going to hit on something good. So it's just a matter of timing and focus and just doing uh, one thing really well, which I think you're on that path. So um, I definitely think you're going to be very successful. And uh, I'm very excited to see what the future brings. Inshallah. Inshallah. Okay. All right, Sean, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Alex. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners, thank you for listening to Chong's episode. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, please share it with your friends and family who would benefit and give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So what do we learn today? After some reflection and thought and after listening to Chong's episode again, it's pretty clear that Rocket Internet and YSE both are able to breed successful and high quality founders. You can see that many current founders these days are blending ideologies from both camps and are building bolder new startups. I personally think YC is still lagging outside of the US, but it's a matter of time before they catch up with some successful funded companies that bring exits to the emerging regions in the next 10 years. Also, there seems to be a covenant where marketing for growth-oriented companies often end up going to Facebook and Google anyway, and there's a large premium for marketing talent despite all the exits and development we've been seeing in the past few years. We are still very far from having a mature ecosystem, so it's important to keep building and investing continuously into Southeast Asia and solving those hard problems. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.